Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, Stained Glass Stories. We have just wrapped up our narrative for our main characters, Adam and Eve. If you have not listened to those episodes, go back and listen so that this coming episode makes sense. Right, because in this episode, we are going to be reflecting on everything that we just read. And there's a lot to unpack, and that is not hyperbolic. But we're excited. <laughs> Can't believe you sneaked that in there. Hyperbolic. It's, it's, it's relative. Okay. I'll allow it. But we're excited to work through the intricacies of this story. No doubt. As you already know, I'm David Dominguez. And I'm Josh Green. Here we go. So the question is, where do we start? Because even though we only read through three chapters, we've covered the creation of our entire world, including human beings. And then in chapter three, we read all about the fall of mankind. Yeah, that's a lot of coverage in such a short read, right? And because this this story is littered with themes and patterns that just establish truths that we're going to continue to see in Scripture and that consequently reveal a lot about God's nature and character. Right. We could probably talk for hours upon hours about the story, but we'll try to keep it concise and leave the conversation for future stories. And the basic structure we're going to follow is zooming in on some specific details. And in the second part, we'll take a look at some of these big picture themes. Yeah. So let's start from the beginning. We see that God creates and creates and creates, and he calls it all good. Good. Yeah. And then he makes mankind, male and female, in the image of God, and that mankind is very good. Right. We then see a potentially separate or coordinated account in Genesis 2 that provides specific details on the creation of man. God sees this man he has created, Adam, is alone. Mm. And for the first time, God says, not good. Even the tree of knowledge of good and evil is considered good, but Adam being alone, not good. Wow. Yeah, that phrase just stands out like a glaring stain in God's beautiful creation, right. especially after what we had just talked about, how he had said everything else he had created was good or very good. So, you know, God had formed all of the animals of the earth and had brought them to Adam to be named, but none of these animals was going to do the trick. I know that. And you know that. And I don't think that was a surprise to God either. Right. So the real helper is not an animal, but is Isha, woman, formed from Adam's rib. Now, unfortunately, I think we look at this word helper and we look at it as derogatory or or less than. But we know that God created male and female in the image of God, both of them. So there's no stepping order or scale or distinction. So this strange idea of helper being less than it's just not true yeah but this word helper is taken out of context so often that we figured it would be helpful to qualify it so what does helper mean then the word in the hebrew translates as ezer it is where we get the words eliezer and ebenezer eliezer is somewhat of a common name in the bible moses for example named his second son eliezer and it means God of help. Mm. And we see Ebenezer appear in 1 Samuel when the Israelites defeated the Philistines. And Samuel sets up a stone as a memorial and he calls it Ebenezer, which means stone of help. So the same word used to describe the woman is characteristic of God. And guess who else is specifically named helper in scripture? Well, the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, we see the word uh, is in the Greek is paraclete, but um, and we find that specifically in John sixteen, mm-hmm. and and this we see this this term helper does not just mean assistant to or servant of. If we understand the role of the Holy Spirit and we see how God is our help in the Bible, then we begin to understand how significant it is for God to call woman helper. Yeah, so God Himself is our helper. Yeah. Really cool. So 
We felt it was useful to qualify this, and many have gone before us and done the same thing, but unfortunately in Christian society, we often manipulate the words in Scripture to fit our own agenda. Mm-hmm. Instead of just letting the Bible speak for itself, we all fall into this trap. So we must be mindful of how we interact with His Word, and I know that's something that we consider a lot when we write for this podcast. So moving along with the narrative, we see God has created a good world. So... Hey, let's be fruitful. Let's multiply. Not so fast, my friend. There's this walking, talking snake that ruins the whole party. Dadgummit. Yep. Tempts Adam and Eve into eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He tells them that they won't die if they eat from it when God has already stated that they would. Right. Well, guess what? They eat from it and they did die. Now, they didn't physically drop dead on the spot, but we explained in the previous episode what this death meant for Adam and Eve. God clothes them with the sacrificial animal skins, and he casts them out from the Garden of Eden. Yeah, I thought that was that was something that, as we were reading through it, I just it just hit me, like this idea of God clothing them and the animal sacrifice and kind of that precursor, which will make more sense when we go through the... Levitical books in the priesthood and, right. and stuff like that. But yeah, so we saw throughout this narrative that God just desires to be in communion with his people. Mm-hmm. You know, he establishes a relationship. He's not aloof. He offered Adam and Eve an opportunity to repent when they hid from him. He doesn't just rain down hellfire uh, because of their sin. Right. And he shuts them out of the garden, not as a punishment, not because he's scared of their power, but as a grace toward them, or else they would be eternally living in the shame of their sin, which is basically hell on earth, right? Yeah, that's that's a pretty good, I would say, recap of the the narrative part of, of the story and just some of the stuff that we've kind of thought through and we thought that we wanted to discuss further. Now, like Josh said, we're going to take a bird's eye view Mm. from here on to some other themes yeah this is where we get to some really really interesting stuff so get ready get ready So, like we said, we're going to take these super high view of this narrative and try to pull out some of the themes and parallels that we we see within the story, which I think will be really useful as we continue going through the stories of the Old Testament and kind of continue to to see these ideas fleshed out. Yeah. Now, a lot of what I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about this just parallels between the creation story in Genesis the building story of the tabernacle and the temple right. and eventually kind of try to link it to revelation as well. And a lot of this stuff I'm, I'm getting from a book by GK Beale called the temple and the church's mission, which is an awesome book, but it's very long. He takes a section of the book to talk about this narrative. And so I thought it was really interesting and, and worth sharing with you guys. So the first, the first parallels that we're going to see is parallels between Moses and God, okay? And Moses, while he's building the tabernacle and God in, in the creation narrative. And initially we see that God and Moses see all that has been made. Mm-hmm. We find this in Genesis one thirty one, where it says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. We see the same thing in Exodus 39, 43, where it says, and Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then we also get these statement of completions about in Genesis 2.1, where it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the hosts of them. And the same thing we see in Exodus 39.32, Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. So these statements of completion. We also see God and Moses finishing the work. In Genesis 2.2, it says, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his, from all his work that he had done. And then in Exodus 40.33, we get the parallel of that where it says, And he erected the court around the tabernacle, 
and the altar and set up the screen of, of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. So this idea of both of them finishing the work that they were doing. So we right. see Moses with the tabernacle, God with the creation narrative. This is where it starts to get real interesting, though. In both stories, there are seven God-said statements. In Genesis, there are the seven God-said statements that we we went over. You know, God said, let there be light, light. and there was light, right? We find those in Genesis 1, verses 3, 6, 9, 14, 20, 24, and 26. And then in the tabernacle building passages, we see seven and the Lord said statements to Moses. So we find these in Exodus 25, 1, in Exodus 30, verses 11, 17, 22, and 34. And then the last two are in Exodus 31, verses 1 and 12. So we're starting to see this kind of pattern over and over mm. with the creation of the world and the building of the tabernacle. And it's like, why are, why are we kind of getting this this idea that these stories are conveying similar right they're linked things. in some way yes exactly and 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 what's really interesting when we think about the story is that while there is parallel there's also some contrast so the parallel being both of these stories are clearly depicting the same image that is god desires to dwell with his people mm. but there is a difference in there as well because in the creation story god is the one doing all of the building all of the creating and he's asking humanity to fill it right be fruitful and multiply now with the tabernacle he is asking man to build and saying i will come and fill this place the tabernacle with my presence wow and so right and so we kind of see this idea of the the concept is still the same god desires to dwell with his people but due to the consequences of sin, we now have to almost build a a building or a tabernacle. This is a this is a way of us creating a space in our everyday life in order for the Lord to dwell with us. It's not that God can't, but He desires for us to do that. But this isn't it, right? Because we know that when the creation story finishes, what does God do? He rests. He rests on well, the seventh day. Right. And, and let's see what, what God says about the temple and what it was designed for. In Psalms 132, 7 through 8, it says, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Ah, so we talked about this before. Really interesting, right? The concept of God resting. Yeah. On the seventh day, does God need to rest? I mean, that's kind of a curious thing, but it's not the last time we see it. Right. Right. This whole idea of the Ark of the Covenant, when it says the Ark of your might, that's the Ark of the Covenant, right, right within the tabernacle. And God uses that to dwell amongst his people and rest. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. Yeah. And, and not, you know, you ask that question, does God really need to rest? And the, the other question that we probably are asking ourselves, does God really need a tabernacle or a building to dwell amongst his people? I think the answer to both is clearly no, mm-hmm. but it shows us that oftentimes we as humans kind of need something tangible to, to, to open up a, a space within our day, within our life in order to to remind us that we need God. We need to trust in him. We need to um, open up a time for him in our lives. But let's continue. In Psalm 132, he says, This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And we see this word rest continually you know, pop up in Scripture before David tries to build a temple. Now we're transitioning from the tabernacle to the temple. It says that the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. Now, David's still not able to build the temple because he was a man of war. But eventually, when his son Solomon decides to build the temple, he reflects on the fact that the Lord has given him rest on every Mm. side. We find that in 1 Kings 5, verses 4 through 5. And I'm just going to leave you guys with this last 
tidbit of cool information that he brings up. And that is when Solomon builds the temple, again, we're now in the temple, not the tabernacle. It takes him seven years to complete it. You find that in 1 Kings 6.38. They dedicate the temple on the seventh month during the festival of booths, which is a seven-day festival. Find that in 1 Kings 8. And the speech to dedicate the temple is structured around seven petitions. Wow. Not a coincidence, no, right? No, surely not. And we know this idea of the number seven being com completion, obviously also referencing the, the creation narrative. It really helps us see kind of this grand scheme of what's going on in scripture and in these stories and how as much as maybe we sometimes try to fit things into their own separate box, scripture is read together and it's, mm. it's more beautiful that way. It is more fulfilling and we find much more meaning in the text this way. Yeah. So we keep talking about rest. Yes. Why is this such an important theme? Why does this keep coming up in scripture? Why is this important? So obviously there's more to be said about the emphasis that the creation story places on rest and by rest, we obviously don't mean being lazy or avoiding work, but reliance on God and his love for us as the determinant of our value and not our production. Yes. Right? And how necessary is that for God's people? Mm. Right. So Marty Solomon for the for the Bayman podcast really helped me see this trend in the book of Genesis and then throughout uh, the rest of the Old Testament. And he states how appropriate it would have been for the Jews who are hearing this Christian story after they have just been slaves in Egypt and their entire value has been based on work and production, right? As slaves, they're, they make bricks, right? And then they stack bricks and that's all that their value is to the Egyptian people. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I, and I don't want to interject too much because I know <laughs> I just got done with a whole mouth. Go. But I don't think that's too far off from where we are in today's society where, you know, all of our value is we're such a production driven society, right? Where, you know, your value is just based on how much money you make and, you know, how productive you are at work and are you the best at everything you do? And it, that's, that's where all your value comes from. Mm -hmm. And so then you get this ground shattering concept that got the same thing that God was telling his people back when they were leaving Egypt is like your value comes from being mm. created in my image, not, you know, how much money you have or how many hours you work. So I think it's a timely word for us today too. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more because if you look at it, what, what do we spend the vast majority of our weeks doing? It's either getting poor sleep or, we're, <laughs> or we're working right. right? And your right. employer more than likely, unless you have an incredible boss, which many don't. Right. Their entire view of you is based on what you do, mm -hmm. right? Very, very rarely do you have them looking at you and your value as a person, as a being, as an entity in and of yourself. It's about what you can do, how much money you can bring in, what your contribution is to the company. So this can be a really difficult thing for even as we recognize it and see it in scripture, this can be very difficult for us to really relate to our lives and especially when it comes to the idea of sabbath how do we effectively take a sabbath so i'm going to go on and talk a little bit more about marty's podcast but i do recommend that you listen to it because he goes into all this he goes into the idea of sabbath he goes into um, this really thorough eastern exploration of the Old Testament, how they would have read it, how they would have understood it, what the emphasis is. And it, honestly, it is very different from our Western worldview, so yeah. it's worth a listen. Now, I have some confusion about another centerpiece of Marty's analysis on the creation story. As we talked about in episode one, there's poetry in the Bible. Yeah. And it often takes form through parallelism. Parallelism. It's a fun word. And this idea of chiasm. Marty states that the Christian account is a chiasm, which I struggle to understand because the pattern is not chiastic as far as that is like parallelism, because chiastic would be a mirror or reflection pattern to point you to the middle. Right. Right. That's the whole point of a chiasm. There's this hidden treasure. 
But the creation story doesn't mirror in that way. It's an ABC, ABC pattern. Yeah. Which that isn't the end of the world. Uh, you know, then, then he states that because it is a chiasm, you look to the center, right? Talk about buried treasure. And further states that if you add up all the words in the Hebrew and then divide them into two, it takes you to the word Moed. And by the way, if you're a little lost, Please go back and listen to our first episode. Right. Josh did an awesome job kind of <laughs> parsing this out and the ABC, you know, all, all this stuff you might be hearing us say, it makes a lot more sense if you listen to the first episode yeah. on Adam and Eve. I tried. I you, tried. You did a good job. Thank yeah. you. So Moed is translated as seasons or sacred times. And if you look at it in the original Hebrew, it's Moedim, which is the plural form of it. And these sacred times, if you were to look at the NIV translation, were festivals, right? The same word used, Moedim, is the same word used for festivals that the Israelites participated in. And this festival was a time of rest, mm. right? So, boom, big, big explosion in your brain happens whenever you listen to the podcast. You're like, oh my goodness, this entire creation story, all of it, summed up together, points you right to the middle, and the middle is rest. So, I mean, if you listen to it, you'll see why that's such a big deal. Now, the problem I ran into is when I went and counted the Hebrew words, and I also had a buddy who is much better at reading Hebrew, he also counted it, and neither of us found seasons to be the center, Mm. no matter which way we counted it. And that was (laughs) a lot of work. And very disappointing. Yeah, I'm glad you did all this research. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, how many times, I, I'll, I'll say this until I'm boo in the face, I'm not a scholar. Yeah. So everything that I say here, take it with a grain of salt. Um, but no matter which way we counted it, didn't work. Again, he could absolutely be right. He could be 100% right. right. And I could be 100% wrong in the way that I counted it or understood him. But I wasn't going to cite that specifically without being able to prove it myself. Yeah. So I wanted to bring it up here. And if any of you have greater knowledge, can explain it to me, please email us at stained glass stories podcast at gmail.com because we'd love to, we'd love to hear it. We'd love to understand this better. We'd love to be able to teach it to other people and have this as an informed perspective. Right. But the reality is, we could not verify it our own selves based on the way that he described it. So, and just bear that in mind as well. Like when, when we go through this podcast, our intention is never to have any sort of biased perspective or perpetuate a particular yeah. narrative that um, we think is favorable to our worldview. That's uh, certainly not our goal. It might accidentally happen because we're human, but we, we would hope that you would email us or send us a message on Facebook or send us a tweet and let us know about, hey, you said this, but that's definitely not set in stone. Yes. Or it's just wrong, or you you maybe you mispronounced a Hebrew word, or you know, whatever it is. We we'd love to hear it, honestly. Yeah, we I, as I think the the Bima podcast would as well. Like we just welcome criticism and just questions and th- you know, we we don't have all the answers. So Please, 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 please share those share those thoughts with us if if you have them. We hope it helps us grow, helps you guys grow, helps us all just learn more about God and His Word. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll say this again later on, but if you want to check it out, look at our show notes. It'll be referenced in there. So we're going to move on to another idea. We've covered this idea of rest and how significant that is, how mm-hmm. relatable that is to the Israelite people, how important that that message is for us even today, right? History repeats itself. We're yeah. very, very cyclical in human nature. I don't think we're getting that much smarter either. So <laughs> we're going to keep running into the same issues if we don't choose to learn from them. And so I think that's part of the reason why this podcast is hopefully valuable to people. You start to see how these narratives continually unfold in the Bible and then start to think, okay, wait a minute. I was just in a situation very similar mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to this. So what ended up happening? What were the consequences? What can I learn? So moving on. The other thing that I found fascinating, of course, was who wrote Genesis? When was it written? And how was mm. the story preserved? Right? Because... 
as we stated in the first episode, we're giving credit to Moses as he's the only one credited with any specific writings in the Torah. Mm-hmm. But how did Moses know what to write? It's not like he was in the in the garden exchanging high fives with Adam and Eve, right? So was the creation story passed down from generation to generation and assembled by Moses? Or did Moses have divine inspiration from God to write down the exact narrative of his forefathers? From what I've read, it's fair to assume that the stories in Genesis were written or passed down orally from generation to generation. And Moses was possibly responsible for compiling the story into a narrative that would be communicated to God's people. Some tried to argue that it was entirely written in the 5th or 6th century BC, but that would be Mm, incredibly unlikely given the context of the Hebrew language itself. I'm not going to dig into it here, but the use of certain names that were specific to that era that those people lived in and particular words that were only used during that time period or earlier provides evidence to support this claim. So did Moses write all of it from Genesis to Deuteronomy? Well, he couldn't have written all of it because in Gen- in Deuteronomy 34, we read that we read of his death. Oh, spoiler alert. Oh shoot. Jeez, dude. So yeah, yeah spoiler Moses alert. Dies. Pretty much everyone dies in scripture except for a couple. So yeah, some of, people die twice, Josh. I'm looking at you, Lazarus. <laughs> what a call out for, for poor Lazarus. We never hear of his death, though. We never hear of him staying alive forever either. That's true. So we read of his death. Right. And it's pretty difficult to write your own obituary, if I do say so myself. Mm, yep. So he probably didn't write that. So that is what would be called a post-mosaica, something that was documented that had to have been written after... Moses died, right? Yep. So there's also examples of a mosaica where it just would have been awkward if Moses had written it himself. For example, in Numbers 12, 3, it states, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Which, also, that's in parentheses when you read it, at least in my English translation. Which, you know, if if Moses is writing that, it kind of defeats the point of humility if you have to write that yourself. Well, maybe he, you know, he should also include in there, he was also the most honest guy on the face of the earth. Yeah. Bold, so, bold Moses. Sure. Good, I mean, I'd love to be able to claim that. I don't think it's true, but... Of you, not of Moses, of, yeah. of course. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely not the most humble person. So, in conclusion, it seems like many people, and, and possibly mainly Moses, wrote down the stories in the Torah slash Pentateuch. But that might not be the whole story. Mm. Here's something else that I found absolutely fascinating. I looked into other creation stories that were from the surrounding regions and compared them to Genesis. Now, I'm going to mainly focus on the Canaanite creation story. There's some parallels with the Babylonian creation story, but it's not super close. You can look into it yourself. There's the Marduk defeats Tiamat, and Tiamat is like the goddess of the sea, but you can look at that yourself if you want. But the Canaanite creation story has some really interesting parallels. Now, remember that the promised land for the Israelites was Canaan. So we are bound to see some similarities between culture and language as they were geographical neighbors. So I'll give a quick synopsis based on the works that I read. Keep in mind, this is an ancient work that wasn't preserved nearly as well as Genesis. So there are some discrepancies between translations and retellings. And honestly, it's really hard to find a complete account of the creation story. So seriously, take take this with a grain of salt. Yeah. I'll, I'll coin this as a crude retelling of the Canaanite creation story, also known as Phoenician slash Syrian. It's a long name. So also bear with me because I'll likely mispronounce all of these names and words. So the entire world was once Arapel, which is cloudy darkness, and Bod which is wind. Bod produces ruach, which is another type of wind, which instead of mingling with the darkness, it says that it blows it away to bring forth light. All right. So here we are, just a few winds and some cloudy darkness, but we already have our first parallel. Ruach is the same word that is used to describe the spirit or wind that was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1-2. Ah. Yeah, it's the exact same word. Right. Okay. Interesting. Right. So these are not gods that we're describing quite yet. 
just forces, if you will. But you'll note, just like in Genesis 1, before anything else is created, we have darkness and wind, in this case, ruach, same word, which is a wind slash spirit. And in the Canaanite Christian story, it blows away darkness and it moves over the deep, right? There's no dry land in both accounts and waters are covering the deep or waters from the deep rather cover the earth and heaven and earth are yet to exist. Okay. So lots of similarities here. Right. So continuing on with the Canaanite creation story, sometime passes a lot of weird things that are hard to follow happen. Not every account includes all these details. So several more characters come into play, begin to set the stage for the creation of the world. Most of what occurs, like I said, during this time, it's hard to verify across multiple texts. Texts, At least it was for me because I'm not a scholar. So we're introduced to the original creator God in the Canaanite creation story, and his name is El. Hmm. That kind of rings a bell. Yeah. El Lohim. Right. El Shaddai. So some consider this another strong parallel between our God, Elohim, and their God, El. So this God, El, alongside the goddess Asherah, you might have heard that one before, they supposedly make other gods. They make 70 of them, in fact, and some of them are Shemuma. <laughs> Come again? Which is, yeah, it's fun to say Shemuma. It's like a, a, a beach boy location. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Artsu, which is Earth. So here's where things get a little strange, like most of the creation myths that you read out there. Shemuma and Artsu form together like an egg. So heaven and earth are not separate, right? They're together, almost like identical mm. twins, if you will. So there's apparently a battle between these kiddos and their godparents, except they're literally gods that are parents. And this yeah. battle results in the defeat of Shamuma and Artsu, causing the heavens and the earth to separate. Okay, so strange interaction there, but we see this story through the story that the earth and the heavens are now separated, which is a common principle in the Genesis creation story where light separates dark, the water separate to form the earth, rather the heavens, and the land forms to separate the waters into mm. the seas. Right. So separation is a big theme in both creation stories. Moving on, there are also children, Yom, who is the god of the sea, and Baal, who is the god of thunder and rain and the mighty rider of the clouds. Mm, I feel like that name is going to pop up again uh, later on as we continue. Right. It definitely will. So they get into their own battle, right? Everyone's just fighting at this point, which also seems to be pretty common, which you can read about more in the Ugaritic Baal cycle. Okay. There's this long history behind this, but there are these excavations that Ugaritic, blah, 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 blah. You can read up on it. It's very interesting, but I'm not going to get into it here. But in essence, Baal defeats Yam or Yam, probably not Yam. Yams. <laughs> Yams. And his allies, so Baal, Baal defeats Yams and he defeats his allies Tannin, which is the dragon of the sea, and Lotan, the seven-headed monster. Mm. So more does occur in their creation story, but I'm going to stop there so we don't get lost. That's the gist of it. Okay, so there's some interesting parallels here as well. Many of you might know the name Baal because he's the preeminent god worshipped by the Canaanite people. And Ashra, as we mentioned earlier, was the preeminent goddess. Mm -hmm. So we'll hopefully dig a little bit deeper into their relationship with the Israelite people later on in our journey through Scripture. But for now, I want to start looking at this idea of cosmic battles. Some interesting comparisons can be drawn right away. Yom is the god of the sea. Yom is also the Hebrew word for sea used in Genesis 1.10. Another parallel there. Yeah, mind-blowing, right? First time I saw this, I was like, this can't be true. And then I went and looked, and it's true. So Yom had allies, right? We talked about Tannin and Lotan. Tannin is the word used in Genesis 1.21 to describe the great sea monster that God had created. Okay? And Lotan is understood to be the origin for Leviathan mm. used throughout scripture. So if you didn't quite make sense of that, the same or very similar words used to describe evil, 
godlike entities in the Canaanite story are the same words used to describe God's creation in Genesis 1. That is very, very interesting. Yeah, it's the exact, almost the exact same words. Okay, so throughout Scripture, we see this same conflict of Yahweh in the seas or the waters, just like Baal and Yom, Yom being the god of the sea, sea being Yom. Okay, so this battle is referenced explicitly in Job throughout the Psalms, and furthermore in the prophetic books Isaiah and Daniel, and then again in the New Testament and Revelation, right? So this theme does not just die off in the Old Testament. Mm. Okay, I'm not going to dive too deep into this yet, <laughs> if you catch my drift. But um, I'm on fire. So here's a funny snippet, though. I shouldn't say funny. It's an interesting snippet. Revelation 13 says, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. Seven heads. Mm. We just read about Lotan. Lotan, yeah. Seven heads. And his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. So a great beast came from the sea. Okay. So in Revelation 21.1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. No sea. Yeah, no sea. I see. Ah, wow. (laughs) I walked right into that one. (laughs) So I teased this earlier in episode one, but some speculate that this is why Adam... Doesn't name the fish. Oh my goodness. It's starting to make sense. Right. A little bit. Right. This is, we're just scratching the surface here, but I wanted, I wanted to share some of this with you guys because this is what I discovered on my journey through the study of Genesis. So what did we just read? Right. Throughout the scriptures, the dark waters, the abyss, the sea is seen as a representation of evil. Mm, Yep. Right. The theme of the Leviathan, the, some, some consider Rahab to be the same. So, in Revelation, when the sea is no more, that represents that evil is done away with for good. Right. What is also interesting is that in Mark 4, Luke 8, and Matthew 8, and I love this, we read that Jesus rebukes the waves and he calms the storms. The sea was chaos. It was unpredictable. It was perilous, and it often represented death. Yet Jesus demonstrated power over it. And <laughs> this might explain a little bit more about why the disciples responded with, who is this? I mean, even the sea, even the wind and the waves obey him. Right? Yeah, it, it kind of makes their reaction more understandable, oh, yeah. you know, because I feel like that's definitely a story that when I read it, I'm like, these are fishermen. Like, they've seen storms. This isn't, you know what I mean? Like, this shouldn't be that shocking to them. But when you realize, like, yeah, Jesus is literally claiming to have power over what most of the people around these people are telling them is a deity, which is the water, right? Um, which I think, I think, as you're as you're going through this, I'm like, wow, this makes so much more sense—not just more sense, but it adds so much more depth to mm. what the Genesis account is telling us. You know, we read, oh. That, that God has creative power and created the waters, right? Like for us, we're like, okay, if I'm just reading this as a list of things he created, I'm like, of course, if I look around, mm-hmm. I know I know water's a created thing. But to the Jewish people, they were surrounded by people who claimed that water itself was a deity. right? And this is God just basically saying like, no, totally something I have control over and created. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we look at the creation account and we see God going through and redefining, mm, right? Yeah. Or, you know, we'll, we'll get into this, but it's this idea of, is a creation story in Genesis a response to the other creation accounts that we see throughout history? Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was the one that originally set the tone. So there's a lot of details in our creation story that are very similar to the Canaanites. So I think it's a fair question to ask, whose story came first? Right? Who was influenced by whom? I mean, certainly we can assume that they just 
borrowed the language and the plot from the biblical creation, and that explains the similarities. That's fair, right? But some also speculate, as we stated before, that Genesis was compiled and presented to the Israelites in the time of their wanderings in Egypt, and or wanderings from Egypt and in the Promised Land. And that this story, whether literal or figurative, was tailored to the truths that the Israelites needed to hear, right? So this idea of rest mm-hmm. and God establishing who he is, right? There were idols surrounding them and stories defining these idols that were in conflict with the nature of the one true God. So what is also different in our story in comparison to other creation accounts, which I think is amazing and often gets overlooked, especially by those who are in, have a contrary view to the Bible, is how God relates to human beings. Yes. So as we talked about earlier and as we saw earlier, specifically with Adam and Eve, right? I mean, we're just, we're, we're just a couple characters into the creation story and we're in, into the entire idea of the Bible. And God is personable. He relates to his creation directly. He, he desires to abide with them, right? I mean, when we see the idea of the tabernacle and the temple, Mm-hmm. We ask this question, does God need that to abide? No, right. he, he doesn't physically need it, but he, he desires to be in communion with them, mm-hmm. to be close with them. So this is really huge. You don't see that in other creation stories and other creation myths and just in, in mythology in general. Like if you look at Greek mythology, that is not the relationship between the gods and human beings. They're, they're close to each other but in a very different way. And it's yeah. usually combative. Um, so I, I, I just, through the study of this and through reading this, thought, man, this is so awesome. So, this, so in conclusion, I honestly believe that the legitimacy of the Christian story is not contingent on being written or compiled before or after the Canaanite creation story. I don't, I don't think it matters. Right. Um, and, I think you can believe in either timeline, and I don't think that calls into the question the inerrancy or validity of the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, God establishes his truth through this story. He clearly clearly defines his character and his intent in creation. And we're, and we're just scratching the surface, but I wanted to provide this perspective because the creation story establishes that God, Yahweh, Elohim, he is the Lord and the creator of the sea, mm. right? He is Lord and creator of the land, Lord and creator of the skies and everything in it. And we can't miss the significant declaration here as we consider the surrounding nations who would worship their gods of the sea, land, and sky. And yet Yahweh declares, I made all that and I'm Lord over all of it. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. And this is a type of stuff that, man, just gets me fired up. I know. Because it's like these concepts are the ones that we're going to keep going back to, right? And we're going to continue to see in as Scripture goes on. And it's like, oh, now when I read Genesis, it comes so much more alive. But also when I read the Gospels, right? When I see this interaction on the boat. Now that makes so much more sense to me. And, and in Revelation, right, right. Well, we'll so, get there, but yeah, yeah. So I think this is this is hopefully where our episodes are leading people to is to have these discussions. And oh, I hadn't even thought about this as a possibility. Um, yeah, great, great stuff there, Josh. I think to kind of wrap all this up, I think we should just talk a little bit about Genesis three fifteen. We we definitely spoke over the top in the episode in the previous episode but i think it's worth kind of just talking about one last time and pondering because all of the character stories and things that we're going to see all revolve around this idea of the seed of the woman crushing the seed of the snake right and this idea of Again, I, I think the case is clearly made in Scripture that Jesus is the one who crushes the head of that 
of that snake. I mean, I have a few verses here that we're going to ponder and look at, but this is such an integral concept to kind of grasp and take with us because as we'll see with Cain and Abel, lineages are going to be set that are going to put the story in a trajectory and we're going to see these these two lines butting heads, right? Like even once we get to the story of David and Goliath, one's going to be clearly representing the the line of the seed of the woman and one's going to be representing the the seed of of the serpent until we get the consummation of that in in Revelation, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just I it's truly mind-blowing when you go through and and study in depth. Like scripture is just endless yes. in its depth. Like we spent I don't even know how many hours, countless, countless hours. And I could have spent 10, a thousand fold just beginning to understand all the depth and the implications that come with each of these stories. And we're, we're three chapters in, right? We're three chapters in and we're, we've, we've only covered Adam and Eve. And I think it really speaks to the fact that the Bible is so chock full of just incredible depth and and there's so much to be gleaned from it. So yes. hopefully this excites the listener. This excites those who are reading through scripture. And I totally understand this perspective. It's like, it's kind of boring. I don't know. I've read it before. Do I really need to read it again? And we're going to continue on with this point, but I know that this has absolutely revitalized my individual passion. Yeah. And looking forward to like, oh my goodness, where am I going to see these themes next? Yeah. And I, we have, there's a lot of verses. If if you ever want to like cross-reference Genesis 3.15, do that. It, it'll be a blast um, <laughs> from personal experience. But I want to just highlight a couple of passages that I think are really, really interesting. The first being in 1 John um, 3.8. And it says this, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Again, just pointing to this, not just theme, but this reality, like you said, this cosmic reality yeah. of what what the ultimate truth of the gospel is, is so much more than just an individualistic, um, good news, which is not anything less than that, but it's this idea that Jesus will overcome and crush the devil. Um, and we see that in, in Revelation as well. In Revelation 20, verse 2, it says, And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And so this, and then in, in Revelations 12, 9, it says, And I think you read part of this passage as well. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So this idea of, again, the devil, the the, the serpent, this, this idea of evil, which we get all the way from Gen- uh, Genesis, working its way out all the way until it's ultimate crushing in, in revelation. Mm. And we see the, this battle between good and evil kind of going on through all of the narrative that we're going to go over. So I I hope, you know, when I, I hope this helps us better understand what Jesus was referring to when he said, you know, you look into the scriptures and they bear witness of me. Mm. I think as we go through these stories in the old Testament that oftentimes people just think are not related. We can't find, find Christ in we look and we realize oh this is all pointing to the same direction yeah it it becomes this exponential climax yes all pointing towards Jesus and this idea that you've already touched on we've we've mentioned a lot but I want to know more about this cosmic battle and Revelation really begins to spell that out in a really meaningful way. And I, I look forward to the day, you know, God willing, that we begin to cover that in a more meaningful and in-depth way. Because when we start to see how all of the Old Testament sets up the stage and builds the narrative for Jesus Christ, mm. then Jesus comes and does the work on the cross. 
right? And then ascends through post, post-resurrection, obviously. And then he <laughs> yeah. ascends into heaven and he's coming again. Right. But this coming again is not something to just disregard or bypass or think, oh yeah, he's coming again. Like the, the creation story in and of itself sets it up for him to come. And then Revelation continues with the same narrative, the same cosmic battle and says, it ain't over, but it's also over. <laughs> right, 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 right. That's awesome. Yeah. Dude, I'm, I'm pumped. I can't wait for our next series, which will be on Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So stay tuned for that. We hope this was useful. We hope you, you guys enjoyed it and we, we hope you continue listening. Yeah, certainly. Um, we encourage you to reach out, ask questions. If you need further clarification or if you want an additional resource, an article, whatever it is, please consider emailing us, stainglassstoriespodcast at gmail.com or Facebook, Twitter. Yeah. That's all we got right now. We kind of have an Instagram, but... Nah. Nah. (laughs) And then other than that, thank you as always to Charles. Yes. For this bop and music. Mm Mm-hmm. Vic, Vicky Victor. Victor Pies LeMay. For the beautiful mixing. Yes. Making us sound much better than we actually are. Mm, that's a fact. And then special thanks to Ivan Ishkov for his work on designing the logo. The logo for our podcast. We wouldn't be here without the incredible skills that our, our friends around us possess. So it's a it's a great gift to us. So with that being said. I have one last thing. And if you got this far, congratulations. We're going to end with a little song that I wrote. Ah, yes. Yeah. My wife and I sing it together. And it's just a a little blip, a little one-minute song, Mm. virtually, of the creation story and just kind of looking at um, the very beginning where God created light and separated the the darkness so thank you for joining us and we'll see you on the next one Then God